we uh, have been looking at the call of Gideon here, and as Gideon has already given the Lord a sacrifice and, and listened to the Lord the first time, uh, he hears him speak a second time. Uh, as we mentioned last week, uh, it's, you, you listen, or if you open your ears to the Lord, he'll continue, uh, and if you respond correctly, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll continue to work through you and uh, use you in a great way. So here he is talking to Gideon a second time. And from uh, our passage here that we read last week, we talked about the orders in verses 25 through 26, the obedience in verse 27, and then tonight we're going to get into the opposition that we see in verses 28 and uh, going on. Uh, the, but just to review, I just want to touch base on the orders that Gideon got. Before he delivers a nation, he's got to deliver a family. He has to deliver his own family. Uh, the orders uh, that he got from the Lord for the reformation of his own household, Gideon was to throw down the altar of Baal. He was to cut down the groves. And uh, we see very clearly that Gideon had no compromise with paganism at all. They had to come toppling down. He attacked it literally with a sledgehammer. He was to tear him down. There was not going to be any compromise here. Uh, this is the only way for us to attack evil in our life. It's to eradicate it, to get rid of it, and we don't compromise with it at all. We don't play games with it. We don't meet in the middle. And so Gideon had to do more than uh, just tear down the false altar. We also talked about that. Uh, he had to build a true altar. Victory over sin is not only destruction, it is also construction. Uh, we, when Gideon threw down the instruments of idolatry, that was only half of his work. Uh, there was a, there was a, uh, a replacement, uh, and we've talked about that before, the replacement theory of, in our Christian life. When I was a youth pastor for years, I, would always, uh, I taught, always uh, taught the kids about worldly music and how to stay away from the worldly music, but we also had a lot of, of good Christian CDs available to put in their hands. So if somebody came forward and got their music, right with God, got rid of some of their music, we would put good music into their hands because the replacement uh, is very necessary. So, uh, but on, and then we saw the place for the orders too. God's orders for Gideon had to be executed right in his own house because, again, before he could lead others to righteousness, he must first be right himself. Before he could reform a nation, he has to reform his own home. Uh, then we saw the obedience to God. Uh, his obedience, uh, he was prompt in his obedience. Verse 27, then again, we're just reviewing uh, here from last week, and then we'll get into tonight's message. But verse 27, then Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. God spoke, Gideon acted. He did not delay, he did not argue, he did not refuse. Uh, Gideon became a great leader of Israel, really for one reason, and that is he did not procrastinate in his obedience to the Lord. We ought to, as Christians, as God's people, we ought to be uh, quick to obey God in whatever he tells us to do. We ought to be quick in our obedience. Uh, every command needs to be followed with a then, like it was here. I like that word then. We see it throughout this story. Then Gideon uh, took ten men. He immediately went to work, did what God told him to do. Timing is vital. Uh, delay is, uh, to, for us to delay in our obedience is for us to lose opportunity to do what God wants us to do. So the task that God gave him, he did. Uh, then we also not only saw the promptness, but the perspiration in his obedience. Look at what it says. Gideon took ten men, this is verse 27, of his servants to do the job. The task assigned by God it wasn't an easy one. Gideon needed ten of his servants to help him in this work. Uh, this is a good reminder for us. 
Sometimes God's work is just that, work. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. You ever done much door knocking? I encourage you to, as uh, we're going to just be starting that again here in town, and, and, uh, but if you've ever done much door knocking, you understand it's not the most fun thing to do sometimes. Sometimes your, your flesh hates it. Uh, you, 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 uh, you think, as you knock on the door, you think you're the only one who secretly and privately hopes nobody's home. But that's pretty common for everybody. Why? Because our flesh doesn't like that kind of stuff. But sometimes doing the work of God is work. And it requires some help. It requires co-laborers. Listen, for a church to do the will of God in a community, it requires co-laborers because it's work. And that's what uh, Gideon used here. Uh, it's a good reminder for us. We did not, when we get saved, get on a cruise ship. Uh, we got on a battleship. And it's not an easy life all the time. So there was promptness. There was perspiration. There was prudence. Verse 27, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it, uh, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. Now, we went into this last week in detail. I'm not going to go over it again, but we talked about whether this was cowardice or prudence. Um, was Gideon do, playing the part of a coward by not doing it during the day? Well, uh, we can argue on that point, but I will say this. His fear did not prevent him from doing the work. His fear didn't prevent him from obeying God. Now, there may have been a little fear, but there was no disobedience. Amen? And really, courage, for us to have courage in our life is not to be absent of fear, but is to do what we're supposed to do in spite of the fear. And so, all in all, I believe that it was an act of courage. Gideon used the fear to produce caution in how he did the task. He did not use fear as a reason not to do the task. And so that's what we see here, I, I, I think that we'll see here in verse 28 as we begin to read our text for tonight, that it was probably a pretty smart thing he did it at night or he'd have had a big old fight on his hands. Uh, as it was now, when the guys showed up, the deed was done. They couldn't do anything about it. Everything had already been smashed to smithereens and cut down and uh, nothing they could do about it at this point. We pick it up here tonight at verse 28 and uh, we'll read through verse 32. So uh, in, in uh, Judges chapter 6, the Bible says, And when the men of the city rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who hath done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. Obviously one of his ten men talked. <laughs> said, Gideon has done this thing. Verse 30, then the men of the city said unto Joash, that's his father, Bring out thy son, that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while is yet mourning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down this, er, his altar. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbaal, 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 something like that, okay? You see it in front of you, amen? Saying, let Baal plead against him because he hath thrown down his altar. Father, I pray in these few minutes you'd help us, that we would see, as always, ourselves in the passage. Help us to apply these truths in Jesus' name, amen. The opposition. Uh, first question, before I get into that, uh, looking at verse 28. Hey, this is a good reminder for us. Do we do this with our idols? The idolatry is not dead. J 
Just because we don't make little statues, idolatry is alive and well in our country today. And when we recognize idolatry in our life, this is how we need to handle it, with a sledgehammer. We need to destroy it. We need to get it out of our life. We need to eradicate it. And so uh, we need to smash them to pieces. Here's what we do sometimes with our idols or our our idolatry. Uh, We put them into storage. We retrieve them later. Let's not do that. Let's get rid of them. That's what uh, Gideon did here. This was a this was a bold move on his part. You can see because they're ready to put him to death for it. So God wants and desires our complete devotion. He deserves it, and let's give it to him uh, because it's the right thing to do. So let's look at the opposition. As is the case, anytime we do anything for God, there's going to be opposition. We see this in the first assignment that God gives Gideon. Israel's greatest enemy, remember, was not Midian. It's the only people they're concerned about. But Israel's greatest enemy was not Midian. It was their own lack of spiritual integrity. Remember when Gideon first, the angel first came, and Gideon blames him. Where's God in all this? Where's his power? And Gideon questions God. When it was Israel that forsook God, it wasn't God that forsook Israel. God was not changed. He he was always as he was. Israel is the ones that left him. And so before the Israelites could complain about the Midianites and get deliverance from the Midianites, they had better come to terms with their own sin, and that's what's happening here as he's tearing down these idols. The same is true for us today. Our greatest enemy is not a weak economy. Our greatest enemy is not LGBTQ. Our greatest enemy is not that we have to wear a mask, although that really feels like my greatest enemy at this point. Uh, that we can't go into McDonald's and all the other myriad of things that we can pick out of the society we live in today. That's not our biggest enemy. Our greatest enemy is our own sinful nature that is so easily influenced by evil and by Satan and this world and our flesh. And God first wants us to take a good hard look at ourselves. That's what he wanted Israel to do. We like to make excuses. And I hear them all the time. Sometimes I make them, unfortunately. I don't want to, but sometimes that happens. We make excuses as to why we don't do the right thing, why we don't do what we need to do, why we don't live for God. We need to overcome them. As a pastor, sometimes I feel like that's one of my main jobs is to hear everybody's excuses. (laughs) We like to make excuses for not doing what we need to do. I saw a story that just made me laugh, uh, and... It doesn't really fit that well here, but I just got to tell you this story. Arnold Palmer, you know the, the golfer? He's invited to, to a convention of blind golfers. It's, this actually happened. The golfers uh, told him how they're able to golf uh, and hit the ball the right direction because they send the caddy up ahead and he makes a tinkling, he uses a bell, and uh, then they, they, I guess they have the distance worked out in their mind, and, and they're the golfers, but they're blind. In fact, uh, Arnold Palmer was so impressed, he asked how well it worked, and, and one of them challenged him and said, I'll take you on for a round of golf. A blind guy taking on Arnold Palmer. So Arnold, And then he, then he went further. He said, just to make it interesting, I'm willing to bet $1,000 on the game. Arnold Palmer against a blind guy. So Arnold Palmer takes him up on it, says, okay. He says, when do we tee off? He says, midnight. <laughs> right? And we can make excuses, or we can just do it, do what we need to do. Uh, any cause worth doing 
is also a cause that someone's going to feel the need to criticize. It just is how it is. Criticism is just a part of getting, doing things for God. All great causes have had their critics. There's always somebody. Aristotle said you can avoid opposition. He said you can avoid opposition by the following things. Saying nothing, doing nothing, being nothing. And you will avoid opposition. Opposition is going to happen. Throughout the word of God, we see the opposition that great men faced. Moses spent 40 years listening to griping and complaining. It all started with Pharaoh and his army and the opposition he got there, but then it didn't stop when he escaped them. He had God's people that he was dealing with. I wanted to constantly stone him and always complaining and arguing with him. Remember the shepherd boy David when he came against Goliath. Goliath trash-talked him, called him a dog. But guess what happened before that? His own brother trash-talked him and made fun of him. I think it's interesting. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors. Also tells us to love our enemies. Because often I think they're the same people. Amen. Uh, we are to uh, understand that opposition is going to come against us. Jesus had critics. Jesus had critics to the point of his death. In fact, uh, it, to the point to where they put him to death. Opposition is going to happen. Where there's light, there's always going to be bugs. And when you have... Uh, truth, light, or good things happening, there's going to be somebody somewhere that won't like it. So here's Gideon. He did what God said. He did the right thing. All right, anybody in Israel with half a brain knows that if you tear down an altar to a false god, it's the right thing to do. But look what happens. When morning came, there are no crowd of supporters patting him on the back. When the men of the city rose early in the morning, verse 28, behold, the altar bill was cast down and the grove was cut down that was by it. The second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built, and they said one to another, Who hath done this thing? When they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing. And then they wanted to bring him out so that he might die. Opposition came when Gideon attacked the religion of Baal. This is always the case with opposition from evil. When you uh, attack evil, you will always have opposition. Can I tell you, if a church is dead, doing nothing to reach people, uh, when the pulpit never attacks wickedness, when the lives of its members do not rebuke the world around them, the world will not be hostile to that church. In fact, the world will accept that church. Uh, but you let a church get revived, you let a church get on fire for God, you let a church take a strong stand against evil, and you and that church uphold a high standard of holiness, and the world's going to show some animosity. Because evil does not like to be called out. Evil does not like to be, uh, to, to be preached against, per se. Now, the devil doesn't waste his time attacking those that are not causing him any trouble. There's no reason to do that. But tear down the altar of Baal, and the devil's going to show up the next morning with blood on his nose, ready to fight, which is what happened here. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it is those, the Bible says, who live godly in Christ Jesus who will suffer persecution. Uh, there's not, not all Christians, but those who live godly in Christ Jesus. They're going to suffer persecution. Look nationally, and you will find that a popular preacher is very seldom a true preacher. Too much, uh, there's too much sin in the world today for the tearing down of Baal and the raising up of God's altar to be applauded. It's not going to happen. 
So we're going to preach against sin and we're going to be faithful to the Word of God. We're going to face opposition. It's just a part of it. It comes from inside. It comes from outside. Here in Gideon's case, it came from Israelites that were giving him opposition. Uh, look at the seriousness of it. The worshipers of Baal, they insisted that Gideon had to die for it. Listen, satanic opposition doesn't play games. It's deadly serious. The attack on righteousness is done with a passion. Look around in the world we live at today. There is an all-out attack on what's right and decent and orderly and biblical. The founding of our nation, everything that we stand for and hold dear, it's under attack today, and it's under attack with a passion that we haven't seen before. We see what even, even our own constitution that, that talks about separation of church and state, and, and uh, which always, if, if anybody who studies it knows, that means the government is stay out of the church, not the church out of the government. But they have removed Bible and prayer out of our schools, and there's always going to be a vicious attack on righteousness. But it's interesting, the source. The source of the opposition that Gideon faced in doing the work of God, was in the supposed God's people, his own people. It did not come from the Midianites. It was his own neighborhood. It was his relatives. It was his friends. It was from people he wanted the most to help. Can I tell you today the most difficult opposition that a believer experiences and the most difficult opposition you'll have in your life is going to come probably from very close to you? It's the way it happens. Uh, recently, I was working with Micah, my uh, son, uh, with a bow. We'd got him a bow for Christmas, and so he's practicing with his bow. And uh, and we have a, I think we're probably about 15 yards away, and he's shooting, and he's hitting the target, but he's not nailing the the uh, bullseye. And so when I wasn't looking, I was starting to get involved in someone else. I saw something else. I saw out of the corner of my eye, he walks right up to the target. He puts the arrow about that far from the bullseye, lets it go. And he steps back and tells me to check out his nice shot because he finally hit the bullseye. Had to get real close to do it. But the devil knows the best vantage point to strike us from is really close. Then he can really nail us. And he does that. Uh, he knows how to really hurt us. He knows how to hit that bullseye in our life, and he often does it from very, very close. Our opposition. Now, this is a sad, sad fact, but it is a true one. Our opposition will more often come from other saved people than it will from the ungodly, in our churches anyway. I'm not talking nationally or the church in whole, but, but opposition within the church. And that's what happened here with Gideon. He's getting this opposition from his own people, people that should have supported it. Everybody knew or should have known that this worship of Baal is wickedness. You don't worship a false god, and yet they want to kill him for it. Let us be wise and prepare ourselves so that we will not be discouraged by opposition. Well, the opposition ran into some opposition. Look at what happens here. It's interesting, Joash, Gideon's dad, who's, who, who was the uh, home in which the uh, altar of Baal was at. It was in his home where it was at, and he's the one defending Gideon. I think that's interesting. You would think that Joash would be more upset than any of them were. It was his altar that had been torn down. It was his bullock that had been killed and sacrificed on there. But despite it all, he opposed his neighbors. He stood with Gideon. There's several things I take from that 
here that, first of all, the obvious, God can raise support for his cause from surprising sources, amen? And he, he's never going to, God's never going to hurt for support from, uh, for the, the uh, work he needs done. He can raise up that support. But secondly, and I think that it's important for us to note here that Joash was like, I believe, many people, even in our churches today, many Christians, who know what's right in their heart, but they just need a leader to step up and kind of pave the way, and then they'll get behind them. I've seen this in churches. I've seen it in, in uh, Bible college. I've just seen it. In all throughout my life, and you probably have too. Now, there's a little bit of speculation on my part, but I think he knew all along that Baal was a false god. Now, why would he have the altar then, preacher? Why did he have the altar if he didn't believe in it? Well, uh, maybe he wanted to fit in. Maybe he wanted to raise his, his own stock with the neighbors. Maybe he felt it was a culturally correct thing to do in that day. Maybe he didn't want to be weird. Hey, I don't want to be a bigot, and so I'll do what society tells me to do. Maybe he thought I can have both God and Baal. Remember we talked about that last week. It's always God or Baal. It's never God and Baal. Yet people want to have God and Baal sometimes in their life. So he, just, he may have thought, I'll just go along to get along. But I really believe that the Joashes of this world, they know what's right and they would do right. They just need someone to get behind. Uh, we need, and that's why we need people like Gideon. Oh, we need people like Gideon. People that will take a stand and do the right thing. And it often happens that there will be people that will follow after him. There will be people that will do the right thing after him if somebody just lead. By the way, that is why Satan so viciously attacks the leaders that God puts in place. That's why pastors get attacked. That's why Sunday school teachers get attacked. That's why deacons get attacked. I mean, just everybody in any type of leadership position, there's a special... Uh, attack on their on their personal lives, they, their flesh, and there's attacks on their spirit, and there's attacks on their family because Satan wants to tear down the Gideons of this world so that the Joashes of this world will keep on worshiping on that false altar. But there's a lot of Joashes out there. By the way, the challenger is be a Gideon, don't be a Joash. <laughs> I'm thankful Joash followed Gideon when he had a chance to do it here, but there's a lot of Joashes in our churches. They, they know what's right. They just don't have the gumption to get up and actually lead in it. But you get a good man, a Gideon or a good lady, somebody who's leading in... When I say a good lady, I'm not talking about the pastor. Or I mean, other leadership positions. But you get a good a Christian leader that'll stand up for what's right and it will inspire other people to do the same. We need Gideons in the world today. We need Gideons in the church today. I found it really interesting as I read it. And, you know, it's one of those things that you read things differently when you're preaching out of it than when you're just reading it. And, and uh, I had read this before, but when I read it this time, I think, well, that's interesting. The guy who's, he was the owner of the property that was destroyed. He's standing up there defending Gideon. He said some good things, gave some good arguments. He gave a challenge for Baal and a compliment for Gideon. Look what his challenge for Baal was. This is one of those common sense challenges. If he, talking about Baal, verse 31, be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Now this statement took the vengeance out of the hands of their neighbors and friends and put it in the hands of Baal. He challenged Baal to take action. His claim was that if Baal is really God, 
then he could take care of Gideon quickly. And look, Gideon's done it and nothing's happened to him. Now, these are people that remember plainly. If they don't remember it, they've heard the stories. What happened to Pharaoh? Pharaoh had said in Exodus 5-2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He said, I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. You know what happened there, don't you? (laughs) God spoke really clearly through ten plagues and showed him. Uh, If God is real, and he is, there is no question he can defend himself, and he did to Pharaoh. It'll happen later. Uh, they, they, of course, hadn't happened here yet, but later we read the story about uh, Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? Uh, they were transporting David in the house of Israel, were transporting the Ark of the Covenant. And 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 7, And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord and all manner of instruments made of firwood and harps and psalteries and temples and comets and, and, and cymbals. When they came to Nathan's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. So he's trying to steady it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and God smote him for his error. Now we could go into the passage and talk about how that seems unfair. He was just trying to help. Even David thought it was unfair and questioned God about it, but there's reasons behind what God does. Don't question him. Listen, if God and you ever disagree, you're wrong. (laughs) If God and I ever disagree, I'm wrong. So let's just... uh, let's go beyond that point of the story that I'm bringing up tonight is that God can take care of himself. God can defend himself. And here's Joash saying, hey, if Baal, let him speak for himself. Gideon did this and has not suffered any consequences for it. All it took, this is what it really challenges, inspires me in this story. All it took was one man to stand up against idolatry. And you have people inspired to follow him in it and do the right thing. We never know who we're going to influence with our walk for God. But I can promise you this. Your life will influence someone. Now, it'll influence them wrong or it'll influence them right. But it's going to influence someone. You are right now, today, influencing someone. Someone's watching you. Someone's listening to you. Somebody's taking note of how you live and you're going to influence someone. When you take a strong and bold stand for truth and righteousness, others will be encouraged to stand along with you for truth and righteousness. There will not be many who will stand, but count on it, some will. Just determine that you're going to do right. That's why we need Gideons in this world. That's why we need Gideons in this church. We all have that unique ability to influence others. Whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, our thoughts, our actions will influence other people's perceptions. This is, this is a powerful truth that we better realize how significant it is. We need to be more careful in what we say and do. We need to be more careful how we carry ourselves. When you sp- Think about this. When you spend time with anybody, whether you're out, you go out to dinner with them or you go out and play around a golf with them or you, go, you do anything with anybody. When you spend time with somebody, you're going to, in a small way, make them a better person or a worse person with your influence. That's something to think about, isn't it? How's your influence then? How are you doing in that area? We're all going to influence people. We better be mindful of how we carry ourselves. Let us stand true and faithful at all times so that others will be encouraged with godly living. Uh, it was about, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, 
I was a youth pastor. We had a youth group of about 40 kids, and, and uh, about I, I'd say about 18 of those were in our school. We had a school, and one of the chapel services, my pastor was the senior pastor, did the chapel, and he did a questionnaire, and uh, he showed me this later, but he did a questionnaire and, and asked the questions of the teenagers, and one of the questions was, who is your biggest influence in your life? And out of 18, I think it was 16 of them, Put my name down and I had cold chills of dread all over myself of what that means that is I mean, that doesn't make me proud that scared me to death to think of that type of influence but we're gonna whether I realized it or not I had it whether you realize it or not you've got it people are watching you people are taking note of how you live and what you do and what you say and how you carry yourself you've got influence be careful how we spend that influence. Read this poem. I don't know who wrote it, but my life shall touch a dozen lives before this day is done. Leave countless marks for good or ill, ere sets the evening sun. This is the wish I always wish, the prayer I always pray. Lord, may my life help other lives it touches by the way. Let's pray that our life will influence somebody in the proper way. And then secondly, we see his compliment for Gideon. Verse 32. Therefore on that day he called him Jeroboam, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. Now Gideon's father gives him this title. It means, Let Baal contend. The name portrayed Gideon as one who opposed Baal. It implied that he had done so successfully. Matthew Henry said, His very name is a standing defiance to Baal. It made clear that name where Gideon stood. Hey, he was identified by his name, I'm sure, because of the fact that people are people. I'm sure that his friends and his neighbors uh, tried to demean his name, tried to poke fun at his name, tried to make it less than it was. Uh, the wicked do not ever respect names that denote godliness. Evil always likes to degrade names that are given in honor of holiness. They not only call people bad names, but they try to make good names sound bad if they can. I'll give you an example. Acts 11.26. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Uh, the, the name Christian, which means Christ followers, was given in derision. This was not a name that was meant as a compliment. Uh, it was an honorable name. It spoke highly of the apostles. It indicated they had a good testimony in following Christ. But when the name was given, it was given as a stigma. In fact, it was seldom used by the disciples, the apostles themselves in the early church. They didn't use that name. They didn't, I should say. Uh, Tacticus was a Roman historian in the first century, and he wrote this. The vulgar called them Christians. It was a name used in scorn. It was a name used in derision. But because of the testimony that they carried, the name now is a respected name. In fact, it's a name even hypocrites hold to. It's so respected. Question tonight for us. What kind of name? What do people name you? What kind of name do you have? Uh, that's a, something that Bible talks about that in Proverbs 22.1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. 
so Christians was given as a stigma. It's not a stigma anymore. It's a good thing. It's a positive thing now. Well, for most people, or people in this country wouldn't consider it positive, but you know what I'm talking about. A Christian is not a stigma anymore. Uh, righteousness can make a, a bad name a good name, amen? And that's what it did for the name Christian. What kind of name? People often think that riches and wealth are everything. They're not. A good reputation, a good character, a good name, as it says in Proverbs 22.1, is worth more than wealth. In fact, I can tell you there are men today that have great wealth that would give it all away for a good name. But they can't buy a good name. You think if he had lived, Jeffrey Epstein could have bought himself a good name? <laughs> nope. No matter how much wealth you have, money cannot buy a good name. But your testimony does that for you. The way you live, the way you carry yourself, the influence you have, what kind of name do you have? What has your life done for the name of Christ, uh, for, the, uh, for your name, for the name of this church? What has your life done for it? A soldier in Alexander the Great's army uh, was a reprobate. He was an, a habitual offender, and he, he was so bad, they finally brought him in front of Alexander himself. And so the general, uh, for punishment, and the general took one look at him, and he asked the young man, said, what is your name? He answered, my name is Alexander. His response was, look here, soldier, you can either change your behavior or change your name. But I don't want you to carry my name uh, living the kind of life you're living now. I wonder here if there would be some here that Christ would look down from heaven and tell us that. I need you to either change your name <laughs> or change your behavior. Something's got to change. We need to honor that name. We carry the name of Christ in our description of what we are, Christians, Christ followers. What do we do for that name? Hey, listen, we got to realize the kind of influence that we have. And I know this is such a small part of this passage in this story, but it just really spoke to me that Joash got up behind Gideon and stood for the right because Gideon had the uh, courage to do the right thing had the courage to take a stand. And it so impressed Joash, he got behind him. He influenced him. If you will be faithful to take a stand for God, you'll influence somebody to take a stand with you. And isn't that an awesome, awesome thing? It's a great responsibility, but it's also an awesome privilege that we might be able to lead someone the right direction with our example. So let's do that. Uh, let's make an effort to do so. Have the right kind of name right kind of influence, and honor the Lord in it. Father, we thank you again.